creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we have on a, a friend and a scholar who has done some incredible work on one of the most contested passages in the Bible, if indeed it is original to the Bible. And we have on Dr. Phil Payne with us this morning. All right, and uh, Dr. Philip uh, B. Payne is a specialist in New Testament st- uh, studies who does work in textual criticism. He studied under Martin Hinkle in Tubingen. Uh, he has a PhD in New Testament at Cambridge University. And he's also taught at Cambridge University Colleges, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Gordon-Conwell, Bethel, and Fuller. Um, you're also the founder of Linguist Software uh, and the president, and I believe you have a missionary background in Japan, which I think you'll get to soon. And if you want to check out some of his publications, he has several, including um, the book that we talk about all the time here, uh, Man and Woman, One in Christ. We believe it's one of the best ones um, on gender theology. Um, he's also published in Novum New Testament or Testamentum, uh, New Testament Studies, Journal for the Study of the New Testament, um, and some other specialized ones. Such as Le Manuscrit B de la Bible, uh, probably the most important collection of essays about uh, the Codex Vaticanus, the oldest Bible in Greek. Yeah, and I asked him to say it because I'm going to butcher the French, so <laughs> not make anyone mad. <laughs> And so welcome to our podcast, Phil. It's, it's a blessing and an honor to have you here with us this morning. Well, I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, and we've got a baby here, just so everyone else knows. Um, he keeps waving at uh, Dr. Payne per- periodically. So uh, if you hear any um, screams, cries, or laughs, I don't know, laughs that's, that's Nolan. Well, he's, he's getting the education of a seminarian today. So this is, this is good for him. So. There you go. <laughs> All right, uh, Phil, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and uh, just what brought you where you are today? Well, the, my study on this passage uh, actually got started because I was attending a, a lecture when I was beginning my PhD studies at Cambridge, and the lecture made a statement. And the statement was this, that there is no passage in the New Testament properly understood in its original context that limits the ministry of women. I almost got out of my chair and yelled, that's not true. Uh, But I didn't want to uh, make enemies that early in my studies. So I decided I'm gonna go and get all my ducks in a row. So if anyone ever makes such a ridiculous claim in the future, I can prove they're wrong. So. That night, I went back to my room and read through uh, the entire book of 1 Timothy uh, because I thought that the passage about uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, uh, if that doesn't limit women's ministry, what does? Uh, But as I read through it, I noticed things I'd never seen before. 
So the next night I read again. And the next night, and for several months, every night I read First Timothy in Greek, and I finally concluded, I cannot disprove him based on this passage, because the whole first introduction to the letter, chapter one, is all about the problems with the false teachers. And almost every sentence of the letter is related to one of those false teacher issues in that first paragraph. And in chapter five, uh, Paul specifically speaks about younger widows who had turned away to follow after Satan and were going about from house to house saying things they ought not. Well, there are no references to men who were deceived by the false teaching, and there are references to the to women, and their descriptions parallel the descriptions of false teachers very closely. So it would make perfect sense in that situation for Paul to limit women teaching because they were deceived. Uh, and but then I began to look at other passages, including the one we're going to talk about today, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Uh, and by the way, you can probably tell from my story that I grew up in a home and attended churches where there were no women up front. Uh, this, it was, we, we never used the word complementarian back then, but it would have been regarded as a complementarian church. And uh, so I had a lot of rethinking and relearning to do. Uh, so initially, my response to this passage was, uh, how can I make sense of it? Because in chapter 11, Paul speaks about the specific conditions for a woman praying and prophesying. And the context is in the context of church work. Um, and the uh, if it's okay for a woman to pray or prophesy, and he begins by saying in chapter 11, uh, every man who prays or prophesies must not this. And then he says, every woman who prays or prophesies must not this. Well, there's no doubt that the men prophesying is a public act. That's what prophecy is. Uh, and so the, the, the conditions for a woman praying or prophesying implies that a woman it can pray and prophesy in the church. And this is reinforced in the key verse 11 of that chapter, uh, where after saying a woman ought to have authority over her own head, uh, then Paul gives the comment, uh, for woman is not separate from man, nor is man separate from woman in the Lord. For just as woman came from man, so every man comes through woman, and all this is from the Godhead. Well, uh, he's making a central point that even though I've made specific restrictions on how women are to pray and prophesy in the church, in Christ, man and woman are not separate. Uh, many translations translate that independent, but if you look at your Greek uh, lexicons, they don't list independent. 
for uh, man-woman relations as the meaning of this word. The, the real sense is separate. Well, if in chapter 11, it's okay for women to pray and prophesy, then in chapter 14, how can Paul say, let women keep silent in the churches? For they are not permitted to speak. How can you pray and prophesy without speaking? You know, it's, it's a real hard thing to do. And as I studied the church fathers, I found that all the church fathers that comment on those verses acknowledge the tension. How do you reconcile this with chapter 11? And some church fathers say uh, Paul could not possibly have restricted all speech because he permits women praying and prophesying. Uh, and others say, uh, Paul had earlier permitted that, but he changed his mind, and here he prohibits them. So you have these two different views, but they all admit to the problem. So um, when I came to the passage, I was trying to resolve that tension. And uh, clever me, I, just, I thought I found an answer. And that is, if you split verse 33 in half, and you take the end of verse 33 and make it the beginning of verse 34, then you have, as in all the churches of the saints, let women keep silent in the churches. And so it's as in all the churches of the saints that they're to be silent. Well, what were those rules? We don't know. And so we can't enforce them because we don't know what they were. So it seemed like a nice solution that there was some kind of convention in the churches for women to be silent. We don't know what it was, uh, but whatever it was, that's what Paul is talking about. However, as I worked on this and started to read the, the manuscripts, I could not find a single Greek manuscript that supported that break, which instead of having verse 34, begin a sentence, it's the, it's the begun in the middle of verse 33. No manuscript uh, supports that. And virtually all the manuscripts have a paragraph break at verse 34. And the whole Western manuscript tradition, every manuscript has both 34 and 35 after verse 40. And so, some non-Western manuscripts do the same, but uh, no manuscript has 33b to 35 later in the chapter. So, uh, number one, the manuscript evidence showed me clearly that the way I was interpreting it in order to resolve the problem is a way that none of the manuscript copyists understood it. So, it was a novel approach that's not supported by the the manuscripts. But secondly, uh, if you take uh, verse 33 and you include, as in all the churches of the saints, then you have a very awkward redundancy. As in all the congregations of the saints, let women be silent in the congregations. You're repeating yourself in a way that is very unlike Paul. Paul tends to write concisely this is not his style of writing. And it, it just reads awkwardly and much more awkwardly in Greek than in English. Uh, but there's another issue and that is 
Paul has been concerned in the whole chapter with uh, uh, propriety in the church. And when Paul says, for God is a God of peace, the additional comment, as in all the churches of the saints, shows that his particular concern is that God is a God of peace as expressed in our worship in church. And that's why we shouldn't have this the disruptive kind of worship problem that you have in Corinth. Uh, and so it rounds out and fills out Paul's argument really nicely if it's part of verse 33. But you lose that part of argument and also the argument based on the practice in other churches. You see, it's God is God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, this adds one more argument for his calling for order in the church. So what I thought was a nifty little solution, uh, I realized is very unlikely to be the case. Uh, if it were the case, I'm, I would be the first person in church history that, that noticed it. And uh, I may be good, but I'm not that good. Uh, so the, let's look at how other, others have taken this passage. In the complementarian camp today, it's very common for people to say uh, what Paul is calling for here is not complete silence. It's only a restriction on judging the prophets. The women can prophesy, they can pray, but they can't judge other prophets. But the problem is that when you read the passage, there's nothing in 34 or 35 that mentions other prophets. Uh, but in verse 35, there's a specific reference to if a woman desires to learn, let her ask her husband at home for it's a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. A, a woman asking her husband at home uh, is coming from, from a position of desiring to learn. That's what the words say. If you desire to learn, you're acknowledging that I don't have all the answers. I need help. It's, it's coming from below and asking to be taught. It's not coming from above and judging what someone else is teaching. It's a very different stance. And yet the people that adopt this view uh, do it in order to avoid the contradiction. And so what they say is Paul is not prohibiting speech in general. He's only prohibiting speech that judges another prophecy. That's all he's prohibiting. But you look at verse 35, according to that interpretation, Paul in verse 34 is prohibiting, is permitting other kinds of speech, just not judging prophecies. But in, so he permits speech that verse 35 prohibits. Because verse 35 prohibits a woman asking a question out of a desire to learn. So I don't think Paul could possibly mean it's only judging prophecies and then say, uh, it's not only judging prophecies. 
it's you can't permit in one verse what you prohibit in the next verse. It, it just doesn't flow. And, yeah, and it makes sense. can we um can we read the passage? Maybe like that's gonna yeah. help some of the folks get kind of a sense of yeah. I, I've got the common English Bible here. I'll read if it's all right with everyone. I'll read just to give a bit of context so people can kind of see the whole passage. I'll read from. 26 to 40, just so we can see kind of the, the arguments. And this is, um, guys, this is another one of those major passages. The biggest passage that it's usually appealed to by complementarians to limit women teaching and exercise authority is 1 yeah. Timothy, um, and 1 Timothy 2. And this one is 1 Corinthians 14 and particularly 34, 35. Nick will read Nick will read a little bit before and after, though, just to give yeah. it a sense. But yeah, yeah. Just, just not just so we don't isolate the passage and so people can kind of well, see. Yeah, you'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, starting in verse 26, what is the outcome of this, brothers and sisters? When you meet together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All these things must be done to build up the church. If some speak in a tongue, then let two or at most three speak one at a time and someone must interpret. However, if there is no interpreter, then they should keep quiet in the meeting. They should speak privately to themselves and to God. In the case of prophets, let two or three speak and have the rest evaluate what is said. And if some revelation comes to someone else who is sitting down, the first one should be quiet. You can all prophesy one at a time so that everyone can learn and be encouraged. The spirits of prophets are under the control of the prophets. God isn't a God of disorder, but of peace. And then as Dr. Payne was mentioning, uh, they kind of play with, they turned verse 33 into one long sentence instead of breaking it. Like in all the churches of God's people, the women should be quiet during the meeting. They are not allowed to speak or to talk. Instead, they need to get under control just as the law says. If they want to learn something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to talk during the meeting or the church service, depending on how you translate that. Or did the word of God originate with you? Has it only come to you? If anyone thinks that they are prophets or spiritual people, then let them recognize that what I'm writing to is the Lord's command. If someone doesn't recognize this, they aren't recognized. So then, brothers and sisters, use your ambition to try to get the gift of prophecy, but don't prevent speaking in tongues. Everything should be done with dignity and in proper order. And if we're in church, I'd say the word of the Lord. Or not. Or not. <laughs> so, now you notice that in that translation, they translated the word ecclesia in verse 33b as congregations of the saints. But in verse 34, they said meetings. Well, if you say in the congregations of the saints and then you move it to meetings, it's sort of a brush paints over the, the duplication. Uh, and uh, hides the awkwardness of the, the wording. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting is if you go uh, from verse 33 and you leave out 34 and 35, then the logic of the passage is tied together beautifully because in, in verse 33, and I'll, I'll be reading from the RSV here, um, you have, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it reached? In other words, Paul is arguing what you're doing is unlike the other churches. 
And then that leads naturally to verse 36. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones that reached? And so you have this logical flow. Yeah. Yeah, it actually does fit together like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, then we we talked about a complementarian interpretation. It's interesting that the most common egalitarian interpretation uh, faces a similar problem. The most common egalitarian interpretation is Paul is not prohibiting all speech. Paul is only dis- prohibiting disruptive speech um, or chattering, uh, uh, something like that. And the Greek word for laleo can mean chatter, although it never does in the Bible. It, it, it can in other Greek literature. And so it seems uh, like they're picking that up from the context. They're trying to interpret a odd passage by pulling what's the giant, what's the overall concern more broadly. And you're right. It, it, it's almost like it works better without those two verses, but I, I think they're kind of trying, they're, they're trying to fit it into the context and maybe not as successfully. They're assuming it's authenticity, but then trying to figure out how it all works. And that's where, that's where the rub is. So, so, for me and my thought, after I realized a tying 33b to, to 34 uh, is contrary to all the manuscript evidence, uh, I then uh, I then thought, well, maybe I can solve this by using this rather obscure Greek usage of the word laleo, meaning to chatter, uh, and hence it be disruptive speech. Well, the problem I realized is if the only thing that Paul is prohibiting is chatter, disruptive speech, then again, verse 34 permits all other kinds of speech and the very kind of speech that verse 35 prohibits. Because asking a question out of a desire to learn is not chatter. It's not disruptive. In fact, it's one of the best ways that people learn. It's when you have interaction, uh, like in our, our podcast today. Uh, you can make comments and questions, and it's as people hear the interaction that they learn. So it's good for the, the learning experience. But according to this common interpretation, verse 34 permits any other kind of speech and then verse 35 prohibits something that is not chatter. So it can't be both. But the other thing is, this passage repeats the prohibition three times. It's not just one instance of laleo. There are three of them. And this was one of the clues that made me realize that my first attempt at solving the problem didn't work. And that is, it's one thing to say that, uh, as in all the churches of the saints, let women keep silence in the churches. So you have, if that were one sentence, uh, you could logically say this qualifies laleo. But then the next statement is for, uh, let women keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now that's a different word. And uh, it's a, The first word was be silent, an imperative. And the second word uh, is for they are not permitted to speak, laleo. So you got sigao and laleo. Well, 
speaking is a broader category normally than uh, just chatter. So you've got, and the, qualif the qualifiers is no longer tagged on because we have a new clause here for the not to speak. So I'm forced to make that qualifier apply not just to the immediately following clause, but to the following clause. And then in the next verse, it has to qualify a third thing after saying, giving side arguments about a submission as even the law says. And if a woman desires to learn that her ask her husband at home, then the passage concludes, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Well, disgrace is a pretty strong word for something as mild as chatter. Um, and, but furthermore, the, you don't have a qualifier as in all the churches of the saints. This is completely separated from the flow of the logic in Greek. It's a separate statement. And so you have the three statements, uh, imperative, let women be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak and concluding for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. So you have <clears throat> three statements of the same, none of them qualified, all of them about speaking or silence uh, and all of them uh, appearing to uh, prohibit a speech of any sort. It is customary in Greek literature when you want to make a point absolute to repeat it three times. And by repeating it three times with different words is a very strong statement that this is absolute. And so to interpret it as qualified uh, and to make that quality qualification work all three, that's tough. Uh, it just doesn't, that's not the way Greek literature works. So uh, in the process, I mentioned that in the middle it says, uh, as even the law says. Well, the, the, the problem is, and many commentators have noted this, the law doesn't say, let women keep silence in the churches. Uh, in, in Psalms, it it says, the host of the women who proclaim the word of the Lord is a great company. Well, that's not a command for silence. It's an affirmation of speech. Um, how, but this, furthermore, uh, some say, well, maybe the quotation is, but she must be in subjection. Maybe that's, but there's no place in the Old Testament that says a woman ought to be in subjection to her husband. So, uh, but every other place where Paul says uh, it is written or the law says, or as is written in the law, uh, we know which passage of scripture he's referring to. Uh, and in the, there's only one other place where Paul uses the expression as the law says. He almost always says, it is written as it is written. Uh, but in the only other place where he uses, as the law says, he then goes, goes on to identify 
the book it came from and to quote what it says. So there's no doubt that what the law says in that passage is actually in the Hebrew scriptures. So if the style is also just very bizarre um, for Paul is what you're saying, along with the content isn't there. Yes, uh, the the way in which it's uh, expressed is unpauline. And for Pauline to say, uh, as the law says, one immediately thinks of the Jewish, the Torah or the scriptures, uh, not, not to social custom uh, as the law, you expect something, but then if it's not like him to do this. But furthermore, there is no passage anywhere in any of Paul's letters where he cites the law as uh, giving a requirement for life in the church. To the contrary, we read again and again and again, it says we are freed from the law. Uh, and so you have a a treating of the law as determinative for church practice, uh, which Paul has contradicted so many other places in uh, his letters. So it's not just that it's an awkward style for him, but it's affirming uh, an approach to scripture and its authority over the church uh, which is contrary to the way Paul so often speaks. It's uh, if, it's almost as if, because I, mean, I was talking with John Golden Gate Fuller at one point, an Old Testament expert, and we we're talking about women in the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of stuff. And he, he kind of said, well, you know, that whole women being silent thing, that's a New Testament thing, because you won't find anything in the Old Testament about women being silent. And I just kind of sat there for a second, I'm like, yeah, that's, but what I've noticed with a lot of kind of, the exegetical kind of materials. So, you know, the, you know, the law, the problem of the law here, or, or the, the creation account narrative as, as interpreted by complementarians in the one Timothy two passage is it almost makes Paul a bad interpreter of his scriptures. Yes. And egalitarianism. And I'm not saying this is the, the, the end argument or the best argument, but it's just a point I've noticed is if Paul is an egalitarian, then he is consistent with his Old Testament exegesis in the 1 Timothy passage, Agreed. and he would have made this kind of point in the 1 Corinthians passage because there's no law in the Old Testament whereby women are to be silent or something like that. And so it's almost as if this solves not just the problem of Paul and women, but Paul as an interpreter of his own holy scriptures, which is, of course, our scriptures. And so I just, I don't know what you think of that, but that was something as you were talking, like, Paul we need Paul to be a good interpreter of scripture so we can interpret like Paul. We need to understand scripture this way. And it gives us kind of a hermeneutical um, buoyancy and assuredness to, to the authority of Paul as, a, as an interpreter of scripture for us. Thank you, Nick. That's, that's so helpful. Well, you were asking about my own journey. And at this point, uh, I had run up against two, uh, what I thought were nifty solutions to the problem and I realized, oops, uh, they're not nifty solutions. Uh, they're highly improbable. Uh, I, now, I now need to rethink this issue. And I had not been open to the idea that this might not have been in the original text. Uh, I, um, that, that was, I wasn't even, that wasn't on my radar. 
But I was invited by Gordon Fee to teach all his courses. And he was writing his commentary on 1 Corinthians at the time. And so uh, he gave me his notes and we spent hours and hours together. And uh, specifically about this passage. And I, I began to get uh, a wonderful tutorial in textual criticism from one of the most outstanding textual critics in the world. And uh, here's basically what I learned. Uh, I learned that the, uh, what we have here is something unique in the New Testament. There is no other place in no other passage in any manuscript of any of Paul's letters where any scribe ever moved this long a passage this far away without an obvious reason. And even with an obvious reason, there's only one such instance in the entire Pauline literature. You, know, you see, from textual criticism, the, one of the fundamental principles is the form of the text that best explains all the other forms of the text is probably the original form. Well, in this case, there are basically three options. Number one, the text was originally after verse 33. When I say the text, I mean verses 34 and 35. The second option is they were originally like all the Western Greek manuscripts after verse 40. And the third option is they were originally written by someone in the margin and then later copyists copied them into the text. And when, if you take those verses and you read that paragraph that you just read aloud and you ask, could it fit at any other place besides after verse 33 and after verse 40, you realize any other place would be totally incongruous. But at those two places, it kind of works. And why would us, um, just so our listeners have a sense, why would a scribe, um, number one, put something in the margins? And then what are a number of reasons they might put something okay. in the margins? First of all, what are a number of reasons they might add okay. that what's in the margins into the text? Okay. First of all, writing things in the margin are done for two purposes. One is a scribe correcting something the scribe has written or something another scribe has written. And so the scribe is saying, oops, as I copied this, I missed a phrase. And so the scribe writes the words in the margin, uh, alerting the next scribe, when you copy this, be sure to put it in. Uh, but there's another kind of thing, and that is when a reader makes comments. Uh, readers of early copies of the New Testament tended to be very wealthy people because a single page of vellum or papyrus was roughly one day's labor. I mean, you're talking, if you're earning eight bucks an hour uh, and you, you work for eight hours, uh, it's $64 a page for paper. So uh, it was expensive and you have to pay for the scribe to write it and the binder to bind it. So people who own books tended to be pretty wealthy. Furthermore, they tend to be pretty well educated. So they're able to read and they're able to afford the book. And these people are opinion makers 
And when they read, they want to make notes in their text. And so reader notes are fairly common. Uh, there was a study uh, by a great German textual critic showing how it was the convention, and we know this from comments of, of writers from Hellenistic world, uh, that scribes were regarded as pretty, pretty dumb in that they would copy text that readers put in the margin, and they'd put it in the text even though it didn't make sense in the text. And the reason they did this uh, was just like a secretary today rewriting a letter for the president. When she retypes it, if there's stuff in the margin, they will be put in the text. Now, the, the oldest Bible in Greek is a wonderful example of how common this was. In the book of Matthew and Codex Vaticanus, there are 20 instances where you have text written in the margin. Uh, in all 20 cases, it's the same style of writing as the normal text, but it's just smaller and it's in the margin. In 17 of those 20, according to our standard critical edition, uh, virtually all subsequent manuscripts have put that back in the text. Uh, 17 to 20, there's not a single manuscript that left it in the margin and later. Uh, it's in the text. And uh, that's 17 to 20 where every surviving manuscript has that in the, in the text. So we know it was scribal convention when there was text in the margin to put that text for the scribe copying the text to put it back in the text where it made sense. Well, in this case, if you had those verses written in the margin, they would, they would cover almost the whole page because that's a lot of text. And so, well, what in that area, where could it go? The only two places that make sense are after verse 33 or after verse 40. So apparently one scribe copying that manuscript put it in after verse 33. Another scribe copying it thought it made better sense at the end of the chapter because then you don't break uh, the, the as in all the churches of the saints argument against their disorder with uh, who do you think you are? Are you, are you the only ones? Uh, it's where it flows so naturally and so put it at 40. And that explains why we have the Western reading text where those are put after verse 40. So uh, that made me realize that according to one of the fundamental principles of textual criticism, uh, the evidence is that it's probably not originally in the text, but rather originally in the margin. Because which is more likely, something that is common to the scribal convention or something that is so rare that we don't have a single other analogous example? Well, the common is much more likely. So that was the first thing that struck me. Uh, the, the second thing that struck me uh, was when I was reading the manuscripts, because remember, part of my process was I was trying to defend keep 33 with verse 34. 
But when I was examining many, many, many manuscripts, uh, I found in the oldest Bible in Greek, a, a well, the two things. Uh, in the oldest Bible in Greek, I found in the margin, two dots and a long bar. And I noticed there are about 800 cases in the New Testament where you have two dots in the margin. And they consistently occur. Can you explain where, a little bit more of what these markings are? Sure. Uh, when scribes analyze manuscripts, they would put uh, marks in the margin to indicate stuff about the text. Uh, this was a, an old Greek tradition. It goes back to Xenodotus, who was the librarian at Alexandria about 300 BC. And then it was uh, Aristarchus took up those ideas. Uh, and uh, ultimately Origen, who lived in Alexandria and was trained in Alexandrian philology, and later taught at the school in Alexandria, uh, he used the same symbols that the Alexandrian uh, philological tradition used to mark spurious added text. And uh, to mark, in, in fact, the same scribe who copied the New Testament also copied the prophetic books in the Greek Old Testament of Vaticanus. And in the Old Testament of Vaticanus, there's only one portion where you have these symbols that Origen used. Uh, the horizontal bar, which marks text that was not in the original text, but was added later. Uh, and an asterisk marking where the Greek translators had left word, words out that were in the Hebrew scriptures. So whenever you have this horizontal bar in the margin, it marks spurious additions to the text by the Septuagint. Uh, and uh, when you have the asterisk, it marks where the Septuagint left words out that were in the Hebrew scriptures. Well, in, I found in three places in Isaiah, uh, the original scribe, we know because the original ink color, the original scribe wrote in the margin next to the horizontal bar, actually a little bit above it and to the left of it, the text marked with a horizontal bar is not in the Hebrew text. It's actually an abbreviation, so using it like a, uh, an accent sign, uh, sort of the text, and the Hebrew is three of the words, letters for Hebrew with that mark after it, and the, and each of them, each of the other words are abbreviated, but we know what it means. And uh, he specifically ex explains the purpose of that mark. Well, in Isaiah uh, 51, there's one of these, 51:23, and you have the horizontal bar in the margin, and you have a gap in the text where there's no writing at the exact point that the Septuagint text added words that were not in the Hebrew text. 
And in the other two places where you have the same explanation, saying the horizontal bar marks text that is not in the Hebrew text, uh, both of those two have a gap in the text at the exact point of the insertion in the Septuagint of words that are not in the Hebrew scriptures. So uh, the scribe clearly used the horizontal bar to mark spurious added text. And by the way, that symbol is the one symbol in Greek philology which is uh, consistently used to mark spurious added text. So this was, uh, it's not a, there are other things uh, which were rarely used and we're not quite sure what they mean or they mean one thing one place, something another place, but this was a stable symbol. Uh, there's a great scholar who wrote about that called Shironi, uh, who says, this is the most uh, recognizable and you know when this happens, we have spurious text added. Uh, so uh, what I found was that in the New Testament, these two dot symbols that are lining up so consistently with textual variants. Uh, and so I published in New Testament studies, an article about that, and it, it sparked a number of other studies and dissertations, and every subsequent study has confirmed that those marks coincide with where there's a textual variant. Uh, very high percentage, and what I did was to compare the lines with the mark uh, to the 20 following lines. And how often did variants occur on the 20 following lines? Uh, and then did calculations and you have this uh, huge statistical disparity that there's so much higher incidence. So for instance, for that two dot, 92% of the cases where they occurred, we have textual variants. And the rest of the cases is about 30%. So it's, it's a huge, and none of the other lines come anywhere near 90%. So the, uh, the case is pretty well established now. I don't know of anyone who's a, a well-trained textual critic who would deny that the two dot symbol uh, is the mark marking where uh, there was a textual variant. But it turns out in the New Testament, there are 16 places where you have not just the two dots, but you have the horizontal bar. Now, the horizontal bar, remember, in, the, in Isaiah, this has been explained to mark spurious added text. And in every one of the 16 cases where this occurs, uh, either our standard Nestle Elan 28th edition text or a more thorough text list of manuscripts by Reuben Swanson, every single one of them, either or both of those two uh, textual editions, identify a four or more word consecutive addition to the text in some manuscripts. Well, I did a, an analysis of how often four or more word additions occur in the Nestle Elan text and or the 
uh, Ruben Swanson text. It turns out something like that, where you have four or more consecutive words added to the text, occurs on average once every 83.5 lines of Vaticanus text. So uh, it's sort of like if you're rolling dice, the odds of getting a double six is uh, one out of one in six times one out of one in 36. Well, that's one in 36. The odds of getting a uh, four or more word addition occurring on a random line is one in 83.5, less than half as common as that. But if this were random, it would have to have happened 16 times in a row. So in other words, it's not random. And not likely. Uh, <laughs> 83.5 to the 16th power is the equivalent of uh, approximately 1.32 in 10 to the 25th power. Oh my gosh. So it's just not, it doesn't look like a random oh occurrence. If it was intended to mark a block of added text, then it makes sense, of course, uh, that this would happen. But it's, not, there we go. But, it's, but it's but it's it's even more amazing than that because it's not just somewhere on the line that this occurs. That one in 83 is means in the entire line, somewhere there is a four or more word addition. But in this case, in all six, in all fifth, one of those 16, it's actually by a later scribe. And we know that because both of the dots and the bar have downward dipping ink at the right-hand side of them, uh, unlike all the others. And it's the only one that doesn't have a gap in the text. And in every one of the 15 with a gap in the text, and remember, a gap can only be put in the text by the original scribe. Once the text is written, you can't stretch it apart and put a gap in. You can't do that. Uh, and so the one case that was done later by someone who understood what it meant uh, marked correctly that there's a four or more word addition here, but couldn't separate the letters apart. So there's no gap there. But in every one of the 15 original ones by the original scribe, the two dots in the bar are followed by a gap in the text. And it is exactly at the point of the gap that the four or more consecutive word addition begins uh, in the other manuscripts. So here we have a scribe writing uh, in the 300s and noting the locations of multi-word additions to the text with the standard symbol for spurious text. Uh, and in the Greek Old Testament, when the scribe used origin symbol, and actually it occurs in the prophetic books 121 times, consistently the added text is left in the text, but it's marked as added with this, the horizontal bar. The scribe preserved the text uh, without removing the addition. But where the Septuagint text 
left words out that are in the Hebrew text and the asterisk is put in, the scribe added those Greek word equivalents for the Hebrew words that had not been included from another Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that didn't leave them out. And so you have the text preserved uh, as it came to the scribe. I want to take a little bit of a digression here uh, because people ask, should we trust this scribe? Okay, the scribe marked it as a later edition, but should we trust the scribe? And I argue for two reasons we should trust the scribe. First of all, in all 15 other cases, our standard critical editions, both the Nestle Alon text and the United Bible Society's text, Greek text. Can you explain uh, what those are really quick for some of our listeners? Okay, the Nestle Alon text is an edition of the Greek New Testament, which assesses the earliest form of the text and has lots and lots of notes saying which manuscripts differ from this and uh, why. And the United Bible Society's text is like that, but it gives more detail on fewer variants and has rated those variants in terms of how likely they are to be true. Yeah, and a lot of the people doing writing our English Bibles and in other languages are consulting these texts, these yeah. versions of the Greek text in order to figure out what they should do. So just so people, just so folks know, this is kind of some of the, I guess, some of the work that, on the Greek text behind the scenes, um, behind right. the scenes of our English and other Bibles. So if you take any recently published Bible, like the NIV or the ESV, uh, all of those are based on the Nestle Elan or the UBS text or both. And in every other of the 15 cases where this symbol occurs, both the Nestle Elan text and the UBS text agree with the judgment of the original scribe of Vaticanus, that the words that are marked as added were not in the original text. Those added words are not in the the, the considered correct text in either edition. The only exception is let women keep silence in the churches, made it in the text. That's the only exception. So the first reason we should trust scribe B is that the, the scribe that originally wrote both the prophetic books of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament is referred to as scribe B. That's because scribe A began Genesis and so he got the A. Uh, but scribe B is another scribe. Uh, and uh, scribe B was remarkably astute in judging additions to the text. But the second reason is that scribe B can be proven to have been very careful to preserve the text of the manuscript the scribe is copying. This is not a scribe who is freelancing, uh, winging it, changing the text to fit the scribe's desires. This is a scribe who has been trained in Alexandrian philology. We know that because the scribe uses and understands and even explains the Alexandrian symbols. But we also know it because the scribe consistently 
does preserve the original text, even when the scribe disagrees with that text. So I'll give you several examples. Uh, let's start in Isaiah, because we were back in Isaiah. I was telling you there are three times when the scribe says, but writes in the margin, the text with the horizontal bar is not in the Hebrew text. Well, there are 12 times, and all of those are right next to the horizontal bar. There are 12 times in the prophetic books where you have the same abbreviation minus the, the line with the horizontal bar. And it just says, this text is not in the Hebrew text. But there's no horizontal bar. See, the scribe understood, I'm copying a manuscript uh, based on origins edition of the Greek Old Testament, where, which identified where a text was added or subtracted from the Hebrew scriptures. And the scribe is faithfully copying that and regards those symbols as part of that text. And it would have been so much easier for the scribe at these 12 places to just put a horizontal bar in. But, it, but the, the scribe didn't do that. The scribe didn't even add a horizontal bar to the manuscript being copied. But the scribe was aware that here too, we have text that is not in the Hebrew scriptures. And so the, the scribe wrote out this abbreviated, this text is not in the Hebrew. I mean, are you going to write that in the margin 12 times instead of just putting a little bar? The scribe is being very careful to not add anything to the text the scribe is copying. We see the same care when we compare the epistles in the New Testament to the gospels in the New Testament. The epistles in the New Testament have a period at the end of every sentence. And it's very useful because then you know we're starting a new sentence. The Gospels have virtually no periods. There's one case where it's, there, is a, there is a period, which is a raised dot in Greek. But that period is a dark black ink, unlike the surrounding ink uh, added later. Uh, and these, uh, the different color inks um, are markers for the time period, correct? Well, the different color ink, uh, can, can show that someone using ink at one period, which had a different level of iron gall mix than at another level, uh, will have a different color. It turns out the original text of Vaticanus uh, has an apricot color as opposed to a dark chocolate brown color. And so in the Middle Ages, it was re-inked and they traced over each letter of the manuscript, except places where the original spelling was now considered a misspelling. And so, for instance, the word to judge is crino. And, but it, in Vaticanus, it's spelled crino, epsilon yoda, instead of just yoda. When the scribe re-inked it, the scribe re-inked crino and did not re-ink the epsilon. So we can see that's the original color. Uh, it wasn't re-inked in the Middle Ages like the rest of the text. And, and how did you see some of this um, older ink? Pardon? 
How did you spot some of this older ink? On well, this was an interesting story, a really fun story. Um, I I had conjectured in my original New Testament studies article that some of these two dot symbols uh, appear to have a lighter color ink in the Vatican facsimile uh, than other ones. And so it uh, turns out that Paul Canar, who's a senior paleographer of the Vatican, uh, read the article and emailed me and said, would you like to come to the Vatican and examine Codex Vaticanus uh, with me to see if any of them really do match the original ink? And so I did. And uh, that was one amazing time. Uh, and we were able, I was actually holding the manuscript uh, each, uh, each leaf has a separate acid-free binding and it takes a huge dresser to hold them all. Uh, and with Paul Canar, uh, we examined those and I was able to look at the original ink with a, a loop, uh, a high density internally lighted loop where those two dots each look like a moon it's sort of filled with this rich apricot color. And then I looked over in the text and here's an epsilon, which wasn't re-inked in the same color, that rich apricot color. And uh, after going through all these, uh, uh, Paul Canard looked up at me and said, c'est le même couleur, it's the same color. And I was so excited. So we, we published a joint article in Novum Testamentum identifying these 11 cases. Well, then in, 2000, in 1999, uh, the Vatican was finishing up the publication of a high resolution color facsimile. And I got on the list to get one of the very first ones in the beginning of 2000 and went through every case in the New Testament where you have these two dots, about 800 of them. And of those, uh, I found not just 11, but 40 more, 51 total, 40 more. Uh, and I emailed to Paul Canar and said, uh, do any of these 40 uh, also match the original ink in the original manuscript? Because he could look at it uh, and he's right there. Well, he examined everyone and he wrote back and said, we now have 40 more instances where the ink in these dots matches the original ink of the codex on the same page. Uh, and we then uh, published that in the book, Le Manuscrit B de la Bible. And that was a colloquium was convened in Geneva and uh, the most famous scholars in the world uh, like Aland, read papers, and they were published in a book. Well, when P Paul Canara read his paper, instead of reading his own paper, he read my paper. And so it got published in that book. It's just kind of nifty. Oh, fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it really yeah, was hey, fun. <laughs> hey, you want to come to Vatican? You can check it out with me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> uh, getting back to you know, why should we trust this original scribe? And I'm saying we should trust the scribe because the scribe uh, 
is faithful in copying the text. We see that uh, in comparing the epistles where every sentence is followed by a period, but the gospels have virtually no periods. Well, the same scribe copied both of them. The scribe knew that a period in the sentence helps the reader. Uh, so if there had been periods at the end of every sentence in the gospels, he wouldn't have removed them just like you didn't remove them from the epistles, which means the text the scribe was copying was so early, it hadn't yet had periods added to the end of sentences, which means the, the text of all four gospels is early, really early, so early it's before the periods were added. Well, it's not just that. The, if you compare the text of the Vaticanus Gospels to the text of Papyrus 75, the great Bodmer Papyrus, that Bruce Metzger dated to be 175 to 225, that papyrus has periods after every sentence. So it's, that, this is earlier than P75 in its form. P75 has twice as many nomenosacra forms. What is P75? How old is it? Oh, and what's the relevance uh, for the dating of this? 75 is a papyrus that includes most of Luke and John. It's also in the Vatican. Uh, and the uh, I was able to see some of the Bodmer papyri there in the manuscript room, which is really fun. Uh, and I suppose I should say, when I went to the Vatican, and I was taken by Paul Canar. We went through a bank vault door into the manuscript room. And then there's one corner of the manuscript room, which has steel grating all around it and a locked door. We went through the locked door. And then there's the chest, uh, a steel chest in which all the leaves of Vaticanus are, uh, that too locked. And we, so we, we, we worked on, it, it just, after we had spent hours and hours working on it, he said, would you like to see a work by Dante illustrated by Botticelli? And so here's Dante's work, every illustration done by Botticelli. It's just amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, and then as he also showed me one of the Bodmer papyri. So I, I, that was amazing. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> getting back Wait, to but how sorry, how old was um P75 175? Uh, Bruce Metzger dated it to 175 to 225. And then this the, the um the Nestle Alon text uh listed as circa 200. Okay. So uh it's really early. Vaticanus is normally dated 325 to 350, so it's it's in the fourth century. Uh so here's something 125, 150 years earlier than Vaticanus, but the form of the Vaticanus text is earlier than P75 because it doesn't have periods. And as the Christian manuscripts developed over time, they used more and more abbreviations for holy names. So you have things like Jesus, where just the, the first letter and the last letter uh, of Jesus with a bar over 
for Jesus, or Christ, the first letter and the last letter with a bar over it, or God, the first letter and the last letter with a bar over it. They're called nomen sacrum. Well, Vaticanus has a very limited number of these. P75 has twice as many words, written forms, written as nomen sacra. So it's more developed in terms of its nomen sacra forms. Uh, there are places where you have uh, words like crino, where Vaticanus has the old crino spelling, but P75 has crino, the later spelling. So you have later spellings, later abbreviations, later punctuation. Uh, there, and furthermore, if you look at the places where you have the text with two dots and a bar, and you compare Vaticanus to P75, both critical editions of the Greek New Testament agree that the text of Vaticanus is earlier than P75. So you have uh, all these different ways of assessing the date of the text. In every one, Vaticanus coming out earlier, an earlier form of the text than P75. What this means practically is that the entire text of all four gospels in Vaticanus was copied from a manuscript that preserves such an early form of the text that it's earlier than P75. Uh, so I would think, and, and not just a little bit earlier, but a lot earlier. But the biggest evidence comes from these symbols. I said that in Vaticanus, you have these 16 cases. 13 of the ones by the original scribe are in the four gospels. 13 of the, of the 16. And in every case, unlike the 121 cases in the prophetic books, unlike the epistles where it occurs, where the added text is in the text, in the gospels, none of the 13 added text blocks are in the text of Vaticanus. Their insertion point is noted, and it's exactly where the original text is interrupted by the added text, but the added text is not in Vaticanus. In other words, this scribe was faithfully copying a manuscript that was so early, it had not been corrupted by any one of these multi-word editions known Describe B when copying it. So the date of Vaticanus, you know, 325 to 350, is we would say the date of the material and when it was kind of formed, but the text there that is in Vaticanus is much earlier than P75, probably even by 50, 60 years is what I, I read. And yeah, I yeah. And, and, but, and, that, and remember that was 175 to 225 range. You push that back another 50 years and that's, you know, the text of Vaticanus, unless Bruce Metzger misstated P75, uh, the text of Vaticanus is a second century text, probably mid-second century text. This is amazing. And it's not just part of the Gospels. It's the entire text of all four Gospels that can be dated that early. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, this is just also good evidence for just confidence in the Bibles that we have today. And um, of course, it definitely more than uh, helps your position on 1 Corinthians 14. Um, and I think, in, I, okay, um, one of my favorite parts of your book is admittedly the giant footnote. I just remember seeing it on uh, 
see man and woman one in christ on page 226 you say footnote 39 most scholars have published their analysis of the text critical aspects of this passage have argued that it is an interpolation and then you have this giant footnote that goes about a page long like it covers almost covers the page and then goes spills into the next one Yes. Um, so if anyone wants to know, like, other scholars who think that this is this passage is a later edition, um, there's a giant list. This is, this is not one rogue scholar. This is a lot of corroborative work being done from across, you know, agnostics, atheists, evangelical Christians, uh, across the board. This is, you can't call it a consensus opinion because it's hard to say a lot of things are consensus in New Testament studies because there's always someone writing a dissertation to challenge the consensus. But it seems that it is... I think the most reasonable and most uh, strong position that I've seen in, in in this debate coming from someone who thought this was original never would have considered that. This yeah. might have been an interpretation. And Phil has just shared a bunch of really groundbreaking work that he's contributed to this discussion. Um, and really, I would say more than tipped the scales in terms of seeing this as an interpolation or later edition. I was w- I was with Ben Witherington and maybe, um, maybe Mike Bird. I don't want to put words in Mike Bird's mouth, oh, but yeah, Ben Witherington. Sure who basically is like, oh yeah, uh, the, Paul's just telling chatty women to be quiet and this has nothing. And I'm like, well, okay, that makes sense of the context. But if assuming that these, this is an original passage in our Bibles, but then I, I go and I read your book and then I read, you know, some of the early church fathers who don't even seem to comment on these two verses, even though they're commenting on the entirety of chapter 14 or even the issue of the law. That was a big hic- hiccup for me. The idea that Paul would use the law and not know what the law says or the law doesn't say anything. And so it's not just manuscript data, it's internal evidence, it is uh, patristic evidence. So it's not just, you know, this is a much bigger case than just, you know, what one person says. No, this is this is something a lot of New Testament scholars and textual critics across the board have very strongly affirmed. Uh, and not just because, you know, oh, it's a hard passage, even though it is a hard passage, but because of the actual evidence that they are presented with. And so I think that's that's really profound just to state for our, our listeners. Yeah. Uh, to give you an idea of how broad that is, <laughs> jo- Joseph Fitzmaier hmm. is perhaps the most famous Roman Catholic scholar. Uh, he's passed away now, but um, he in his commentary in First Corinthians uh, wrote that virtually all recent commentaries on 1 Corinthians view those verses as a later edition. And uh, there's another text critical scholar who said, not just commentators, virtually all scholars agree, it's that. Now, there are plenty of scholars that don't agree with that, but it is very broadly based and to give another idea, there, one of the most famous Greek Orthodox scholars today, uh, Hart, wrote his new translation of the New Testament. And when he comes to 1 Corinthians 14.34, he puts those verses in brackets and has a two-page long footnote in which he says, this text was almost certainly not in Paul's letter. So it's, there's a lot of evidence for it. Uh, that footnote you refer to lists 52 different articles. There are actually over 70 different articles that have been written arguing that those uh, verses were not in the original text. And of those people that approach the text from a text critical point of view, 
the overwhelming majority of articles I've seen argue that it was not originally in the text. So uh, I was saying, why should we trust Scribe B's judgment? And uh, the first reason was Scribe B uh, in every other case where the symbol was used, got it right according to our critical editions today. So the, the Scribe B's good judgment is confirmed 15, you know, in every other case. But the second reason is that Scribe B had access to far more early New Testament manuscript texts written from before that writing in the mid fourth, fourth century, far more than everything we have today put together. So if you take all 132 papyri and all the unsuited manuscripts that are dated from before uh, Vaticanus, Scribe B had access to far more text than that. If you take all those papyri together and early unsuited manuscripts prior to Vaticanus, uh, you come out to uh, essentially one copy of the New Testament in terms of length. If you look at Scribe B and the notes that match the original text, those 51 cases where you have original ink in the two dots and other cases where you have the same apricot color sticking out behind a re-ink dot. And there's one case where one dot has the apricot color and the, the other dot has been re-inked uh, with a late color. So apparently in the middle of re-inking it, the, the baby cried, you know, <laughs> and so, so this, so the, and by the way, when I say the baby cried, that's intentional because Origen said he preferred girls trained in penmanship to do his writing. So when we talk about the scribe, many people say the scribe, he, he, and assume it's a man. We don't know that. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, the, the, the scribe who's probably had more accolades written about beautiful penmanship than any other scribe from the Hellenistic period is Melania, a woman. So uh, it's just a good to keep in mind. Well, it lets us know that our Bible was in good hands from the beginning. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. I think, yeah, I think we, I think you guys all have a very thorough understanding now of First Corinthians 14, and, 34, 35. And not just this one or these two verses, yeah. uh, but just the, the, the art and the science behind uh, the looking how the sausage is made. How, how did our Bible, or at least a lot of it come to be? And we can see how everything is built on the past and why the past and why history are so important. And that's important for preaching. That's important for theological education and formation is that the past means something to us. And especially as Christians, our Bibles, if we, if we take scripture seriously, that means understanding the historical world that God chose to speak in. And uh, looking at, at this uh, gives us a sense of looking under the hood of, of the importance of studying our scriptures, but also the importance of 
looking to see that Paul was a coherent thinker, because I think in a lot of scholarship, it's like, well, Paul said this in the pastorals, but we also know what he said in Galatians 3.28, and eh, Paul's inconsistent. It's like, no, uh, your, your drive, it seemed to me, and this is something I share and that formed me personally, was Paul, uh, for all his humanness, is not incoherent. He's not, he's not a willy-nilly yeah. theologian. He's a, a, an exacting reader of Israel scriptures. He takes his Bible seriously, and he thinks critically. Yeah. And Paul is not going to say A and not A in the same passage, which drives us to look at Paul yeah. as a coherent, rigorous thinker that we can trust. And it's just too much of just like, oh, we're just going to assume Paul's being incoherent. He's going on a random tr- tangent. No, not related at all. You oh, know, no. just I, too much. Of a this. woman spilled some coffee on him. And so he got angry and wrote the two verses in first <laughs> Corinthians 14, even though he normally wouldn't write those things. It's like, no, Paul is a coherent thinker. He's yeah. not going to t- speak out of both sides of his mouth. And that is why uh, this coming to the conclusion of this passage, looking for a coherent, reasoned, historically reliable understanding of Paul, um, for me, pushed me to the view that these two verses are an interpolation, just my personal, I, I think I've put it in print somewhere. Um, and that, that's why I think taking Paul seriously and looking at the evidence should give us a, a it, it should force us to look beyond the binary of, oh, Paul's, Paul's so human, he got these things and he's, he's incoherent versus, oh, no, Paul, we have to reinterpret all the other stuff. Like Junia has to become subservient to this passage. Like, no, maybe there's a historically responsible middle ground. Uh, and just reading Paul well, I think, is a, is a lost art in many ways in New Testament scholarship, I, at least as far as I can see sometimes. That's fair. <laughs> what a wonderful summary. I do want to make uh, one brief comment and then one indication of how much farther one could go. Uh, the one brief comment is you use the word interpolation. And interpolation is often used to mean where a text has been added that it wasn't there originally. But it comes from the Latin word to polish. Uh, and uh, because of that background, there are some scholars who use the word interpolation to refer specifically to a deliberate addition to the text. Uh, In this case, if it was originally written in the margin, the later scribe who copied it in wasn't deliberately changing the text at all. The scribe was simply following convention of putting text in. And I think it's it's more correct to speak of it as a gloss, G-L-O-S-S, a gloss. There we go. Um, and, and that way, we're, we're not talking about a scribe changing the text at all. The scribe is merely copying what's in front of the scribe. Now, to give you an idea of the scribe's reluctance to remove uh, text from scripture, Uh, If you just look at Vaticanus in those prophetic books, there are 121 places where the Greek text added blocks of text that were not in the Hebrew text. There are only 12 uh, total lines, uh, only four instances altogether, but only 12 total lines where there was Hebrew text that was left out of the Greek translation. So 121 verses 12, the the tendency was not to take away, the tendency was to add. And once text was in scripture, 
uh, any later scribe would be very re reluctant to take it out. So it's quite significant that scribe B had enough evidence that scribe B would, would mark let women keep silence in the churches as a later edition. But you see, scribe B had access to so much more text than we have that that could happen. If someone wants to have a much deeper view of the whole question we've talked about today, uh, my book talks about seven internal and nine, I mean, seven external, that is manuscript-based reasons, and nine internal reasons uh, why I regard it as a later edition. We've talked about two of the internal, uh, two, two of the external, namely the uh, principle that the text that explains all the other texts is most likely the original text and Codex Vaticanus, marking it as a later edition. But there's seven more instances, including an early church father, Irenaeus, who uh, writes about this text as though it's, it's uh, he speaks of men and women being silent in the church. And if his text had had that women keep silence, why would he say let men and women be silent? Because it makes sense of the context of First so, Corinthians 14, because so, it seems like everyone's referred to. <laughs> but then there's the second, the, the yeah. internal, again, we've only looked at two of the internal reasons. Uh, there, there are nine internal reasons why this text doesn't make sense is from Paul. The only two we looked at are the conflict with permitting women to prophesy and being silent, and this uh, use of, as even the law says, which is so unpauline. But there's seven other things that are very unpauline about the passage. All right, everyone, got to go get the book. Just telling you. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so, so much for maybe uh, to close with one yes, other comment. Please do. And that is one objection is that if this was added to the text, not originally in the text, it must have been extraordinarily early because every manuscript that we have has that includes this section of First Corinthians uh, includes the verses somewhere. Uh, and I used to argue, in fact, in my book, I argued that this probably happened by the end of the first century. But I've done some more examination of parallel cases, and I now believe that it could have been added in the margin by a writer uh, almost any time up to 280. Uh, and I'll explain why. There is a similar case where you have uh, original text and then later addition to it, where the very first manuscript that attests the addition is Codex Sinaiticus, which is written about 360 AD. And before then, there's not a single manuscript that included in Ephesians chapter five, the verb submit, let uh, wives submit to your husbands. In, in Greek, originally there was no verb submit. And the early church fathers that comment on this, uh, many of their comments do not have the verb submit. And yet 
once the verb submit is added to the text in Codex Sinaiticus, there is not a single manuscript <clears throat> after the writing of Codex Sinaiticus that, in, that does not include the verb submit. In other words, once it got in, it was not taken out. It's the principle I said is much more likely to add than to take away. If that word submit, if, if it was originally not, and by the way, virtually every critical edition of uh, the Greek New Testament, and this goes what, go back way before we'd ever found uh, the papyri. Uh, virtually all critical editions do not include the verb submit here. But now that we've found new papyri that confirm that the early manuscripts didn't, didn't have it, uh, it's, it's really close. If for someone to argue that it was originally in the text, they would have to argue that every one of the church fathers in every one of the early manuscripts uh, either removed it or copied something that had removed it. Every one of them. But if it was so common to remove text in the earliest evidence, you'd think there would be some scribe who would, once it's put in, would take it out again. But because no scribe ever took it out and all the earliest evidence does not have it in, that means it was, once it was added, it's, it, it, people kept it in. And in that case, it was used uh, in like a marriage ceremony and liturgically. And if you were talking about husband-wife relations without the context of submitting one to another, wives to your own husbands, uh, then the, you have to start there. And you can't just say, Wives to your own husbands, you have to add the verb if you separate it from the previous part of the sentence. Because in Greek, it's one sentence. And so, because here's a case where the very first instance of it in any New Testament Greek manuscript is roughly 360 AD, but there's no manuscript after then without it that shows when you have something that is useful and fits the uh, the common popular wisdom of the day, namely that women should be silent in the churches or the women should should submit to their husbands. Once it's in the text, no one's going to take it out. And if they're aware of any other manuscript that has it, they're not going to want to send continue the manuscript without it. So uh, I think that it could have been added any time up to 200 AD and still explain all the manuscript evidence perfectly. One of the, one of my favorite things I did at church, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a local Baptist church was we actually, I called it the scriptorium <laughs> where I looked, we went through all week by week, uh, one of the major textual variants in the new Testament, you know, so Romans five, one, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery in John, and we and very fun, very fun, and we treat it like a crime scene, you know. And yeah. so we're like, how the same two dots in a bar occurs at the women caught in adultery. Yeah, it does. Yes. The gap at the exact point where yep. it where it's inserted. Yep. And one of the things I stressed to them was, um, 
and they, they came out in favor of ironically there and it's a you got pretty egalitarian church uh but they when we came to these two verses uh for the gloss in 1 corinthians 14 one of the thing was what do we, now that we've concluded that these are not original what then do we do because that's another question that's a completely separate question and a lot and the consensus for all of them you know so the woman caught in adultery or 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 you know spurious text was we keep it in our bible so we don't lose it but we don't put it in the spot where it is in the the main text we put a footnote there and we we move it somewhere else just to let people know that this is a displaced you know we you kind of displace it so people are forced to go look at it and then you have a page where you actually explain here's why this is here we put it back in the margin by putting yeah, it yeah we in basically the, <laughs> the joke <laughs> the joke in the scriptorium was it goes back into the margin because we don't want it a part of the main text because that's or not original hmm. to the text but we don't want to lose it because we believe that this is this was meaningful to the people that put it there and we don't just want to copy and delete it and so it was an interesting kind of experience mm. watching people kind of just normal folks some been to seminary most of them not but just kind of being like you know they get to see how the sausage is made and how the bible comes to being and and how we wrestle with the text of holy scripture and it was just it was a fun and i used your work of course on vaticanus and and all of that and so it was just kind of fun to see it, how it works in the local church and surprisingly it's the technical terms for folks is a little difficult to grasp but the concepts i think for most people it's it's one of those things where i think a lot of people are a, a lot of people are a lot smarter than a lot of people give them credit for agreed and that's why this is valuable for the local church one thing i think is very interesting is to uh, compare the christian approach to its manuscript tradition to the islamic approach to the manuscript tradition uh, the christian approach has been from the earliest days to acknowledge corruptions to the text. Origen writing about 240, 230, uh, and maybe even earlier, uh, repeatedly refers to corruptions in the text. And then he, that's why Origen wanted to make a version of the Greek Old Testament that, that had the same content as the Hebrew Bible, uh, identifying where stuff was added putting back in stuff that was left out. In contrast, in the Islamic tradition, there is a strong belief that the Quran has never changed. And there's never been a manuscript of the Quran that wasn't like our current text. Uh, the problem is there are plenty of old Quranic manuscripts that are not like the current text. And, uh, I think it's much better to be honest with the text because when people learn that, they'll become disillusioned with what they've been taught. And to give you one example, in the oldest mosque in Yemen, they were doing a uh, reconstruct, reconstruction of part of the building and they broke through a wall and they found a bunch of old Qurans and really old Qurans, including old palimpsests where a Quran had been washed away and rewritten, but you could still read the old text under it. And two of those were from the 600s, same century as Muhammad. And it was such old uh, Arabic that they called in German scholars to help decipher the text. And the German scholars were able to decipher it and show friends, there was one place where uh, it said that 
people who do this uh, will be subject to judgment in the present. But the older text said, uh, shall be subject to judgment in the present and the hereafter. I mean, that's a big difference. And, and so to say that there's never been a man, there's never been a textual variant to the Quran is simply not true. So I'm, I'm glad we're honest with the text. And we're, we're in this particular case, because it is a unique case, uh, no other passage in the New Testament moved this long a passage, moved this far away without an obvious reason, because if there's no other case like it, it doesn't undermine our trust in any other passage of scripture. It's unique. Yeah, and uh, uh, Phil, you've done a lot of work um, within local churches as well, especially when in your work in some missionary in Japan. Um, has did any of the like more of the deep scholarship that you've done? How how did that play with kind of more of a pastoral or missionary role? Well, I I felt called to give my life to missionary service in in Japan. And I was invited to take a teaching position at Ridley College in Cambridge um, and turned it down because I wanted to be a missionary in Japan. I felt that was God's calling. So, and yet the Lord opened the door for me to continue to do research and writing and, uh, and other stuff too. So God's guidance is a wonderful thing and we can just be grateful for that. My heart is to see people come to know the Lord uh, and to see them transformed. I was actually preparing as a pre-med student to be a doctor, and I was doing a, a missionary service in France, in Amiens and Beauvais. And I came to know a young blind boy who was probably the saddest person I ever met. And he came to know Christ and to see his, his faith come alive uh, with, with the knowledge of Christ made me decide, you know, uh, more than anything else, I want people to experience that. And sadly today, there are far more women leaving the church than men leaving the church. And a lot of it is because women do not feel that they are accepted in the church because of complementarian teaching. Uh, they're not permitted to use their gifts and they leave. That is a tragedy. And it undermines the gospel. It undermines the work of the Holy Spirit and in the individual lives that transforms. So we need to be open to hear God's word and let it transform us. Amen to that. <laughs> Nick is, um, oh, just finished changing a diaper. Not my own, my son's. <laughs> thank you for that clarification. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Oh, there he goes. Nick's going to go grab him. But thank you for joining us. And you're yeah, most welcome. We appreciate it as always. And I hope the rest of you will check out 
uh, Dr. Payne's book. And um, you have a, another book coming out that's kind of, you were saying a popular version of The Man, Woman, Woman in Christ. Do you want to quickly tell us about that before you have to go? Well, uh, a number of things have been discovered since that book was published, including a lot of what we just talked about today. And I wanted to make that available to people. But I've there were a lot of people who said, I can't read a 511 page book, I'm too busy. And so we decided, let's put all the cookies on the lower shelf and do about 110 page book. And then with some appendices with more detail, uh, cover new stuff. And so that should be coming out later this year. Nice. Yeah, so it sounds like there's um, some good cookies for, for all of us and some new things too. So we'll definitely be checking that out. All right, well, we gotta go, but again, thank you, it was a pleasure as always.